0: You're listening to the Talking Rheumatology Research Podcast, brought to you by the British Society for Rheumatology. Welcome to the Talking Rheumatology Research Podcast from BSR Journals. I'm David Liu, rheumatologist and clinical pharmacologist in Melbourne, Australia, and today we'll be talking a little bit about cocaine-induced vasculitis. And this really comes on the back of an article in Rheumatology Advances in Practice, as well as an editorial which followed that, from Sander van Looyen, who has joined me today. Sander, would you mind introducing yourself?
1: Yes, hi David. So my name is i van and I've been working as a consultant rheumatologist in the city of Nijmegen in the Netherlands since 2016 now, if I remember correctly. And before that, I did my training in Amsterdam in the Netherlands, but also in, in London in,
0: in England. And I mean, I think that's particularly pertinent to this particular issue as we'll get into. You've written this beautiful editorial with a lovely graphic as well. The editorial was entitled Hidden in Plain Sight, How to Look Behind the Veil of Cocaine-Induced Vasculitis. And really, I think it's about appreciating that, apart from just those cocaine-induced midline destructive lesions, which can mimic anchor-associated vasculitis, apart from those, we have this increasing appreciation about cocaine-induced vasculitis looking a lot like anchor-associated vasculitis. Can you tell us a little bit about how this has evolved over time and what it looks like in practice?
1: Yes, absolutely. I think it's it's, it's a very good question. The cocaine-induced vasculitis can mimic closely the ANCA-associated vasculitis, and that can make a diagnosis very hard to differentiate. The ANCA-induced vasculitis can, can manifest itself in different ways, similar to an to an ANCA-associated vasculitis in the sense that you, you can have isolated ENT problems or or skin Uh, involvement but but also lung or or kidney involvement so for from a clinical perspective it can be very difficult to distinguish between the two entities but nevertheless it's extremely important that you distinguish them because treatment can be quite different and I think what the paper from Dr. Gill has very nicely shown that if you do your analysis in all your patients you're going to find more cocaine induced vasculitis than you originally thought And that goes back to the beginning of the the, the clinical process, I guess, where you may want to lower the threshold for cocaine uh,
0: testing in urine. And I mean, sometimes autoantibodies can differentiate a drug-induced disease away from classical disease, but uh, possibly less so in this case. Would that be fair to say?
1: Yeah, I agree. I think that uh, the vast majority of cocaine-induced vasculitis, they have positive ANCA antibodies. So I think about 90%. But in a very large part of these patients, you will see a very atypical pattern. So that doesn't help you further. There have been some earlier reports where the researchers felt that dual positivity, so pr uh, 3 n mpo antibodies, could be pathomonic for cocaine-induced vasculitis. But the current study shows that that's not necessarily true. Uh, and also in earlier large anchor associated trials, They saw dual positivity. So just by going on the antibodies, that's not going to be enough to distinguish these
0: two disorders from each other. And I guess it's particularly the case in that you can't necessarily just tell who's a cocaine user from looking at them from the end of the bed. I think I've been shocked as to how widespread cocaine use is, particularly in the UK.
1: Yeah, the the use of cocaine seems to be rising exponentially. If you look at the latest UN report, I think uh, in the period between 2014 and 2020, it almost doubled. And so that must also mean that cocaine-induced vasculitis is happening more often than before. And exactly like you said, it's very difficult to be able to tell who uses cocaine and who doesn't. And obviously, a detailed history is very important, but from earlier reports, we know that self-reported cocaine use is notoriously unreliable. And um, in the paper by Dr. Gill, they also clearly described that a large portion of the patients who denied using cocaine or said they had stopped using cocaine, that they still have uh, a positive urinalysis. So it's very difficult to to know beforehand. And I think the only way to solve this is to uh, to check the urine more often than we currently do.
0: And I guess it's probably compounded by the fact that levamisole, which is that anti that's used to cut cocaine, which is thought to be a big part of inducing this vasculitis, doesn't show up on any of these screens as well, but it seems to be more commonly used nowadays in cutting cocaine.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, in in the portions that that are being um, confiscated by uh, customs in the U.S. and then in, in Europe, they see rising percentages of famisole uh, because it sounds like the ideal agent to cut the cocaine with because it's obviously a lot cheaper and it's supposed to enhance the, the effects by, by, by cocaine, and it doesn't show up in all the routine tests that we have to check for cocaine. So from a drug dealer perspective, it sounds like an ideal agent to cut the cocaine with, but at the same time, it causes more problems because it, it can induce all these, um, these manifestations that we see in ankyl vasculitis if i could come back to what you said earlier that it's it's, it's difficult uh, from a clinical perspective to make the diagnosis i think one of the things that makes it harder is is that what they did in birmingham they didn't just test for uh, the use of cocaine in the urine but all kinds of different drugs and what they saw is is that in a large portion of patients they were not just using cocaine but they were also using other illicit drugs uh, with their own uh, effects and manifestations and that also makes the clinical course of the disease more difficult to to recognise, I think.
0: So I'd love to compare the work that you previously did when you were at Thomas and Guy's, previously when you were living in London and working in London, and compare that to this work now, which is from Birmingham and from the Royal Free, looking at how things have changed, really. Would you care to compare the two series and how things might have changed in that time with levamazole-induced acro vasculitis?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I, what we did, we also looked retrospectively. But one of the, the, the big differences already is, is that we look back a little further i think we look back for a period of almost uh, 15 years and we found 14 patients and these two centers in uh, in london and birmingham they look back for a period of 5 years they found more than 40 patients which is already a clear indication that this is happening uh, more frequently now than it used to and that we need to be more aware of that this is happening uh, because in reality it seems likely that we are now missing some of these diagnoses, because we are not testing for it. And like I said, the, the, the manifestation can be quite variable. And I think in the, in the recent paper by Dr. Gill and his colleagues, they saw predominantly patients who came through in the ENT pathway. So they saw a lot of uh, patients with uh, midline destruction. And the case series that I did in London, together with my colleagues, we also saw a lot of systemic effects. So there may be a little bit of a referral bias in the, in the in the paper by Dr. Gill, in the sense that it's predominantly an NT pathway, and I think systemic manifestations of the cocaine-induced vasculitis are in reality even a little bit more common.
0: So this obviously has some important therapeutic implications as well, because if you don't stop the cocaine, then the vasculitis keeps on going.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a that, that's a big problem. I think. In a lot of these cases, they have been diagnosed previously as an ANCA-induced vasculitis, and when you look at the patients from the Birmingham clinic, they received a lot of heavy immunosuppressive therapy, including cyclophosphamide, rituximab, and all of that was ineffective on the background of ongoing cocaine use. So the mainstay of therapy, if you will, has to be that cocaine use is discontinued. You have to, the, the, the best therapy is just stopping cocaine use and I realize that's easier said than done if you are addicted to cocaine but the downside of course is that you expose patients to all these heavy immunosuppressive agents with the, with the side effects that come along with it without a chance of being effective.
0: So what do you think we should do in routine clinical care and then possibly beyond that in research as far as addressing this issue is concerned? It seems really important to get the testing right and to have a low burden of suspicion regarding cocaine use and possibly cocaine-induced vasculitis.
1: Yeah, I think it may be a little bit of an open door, but I think awareness is key. A problem with the fact that it can manifest in in so many different ways is that patients can see different doctors. Uh, They can be referred to a dermatologist or a nephrologist or rheumatologist, an ENT specialist. And all of those specialists need to be aware of this presentation, that a cocaine-induced vasculitis can can closely mimic an anchor associated vasculitis, and you have to be aware of that. And the next step, obviously, would would be to also screen for that uh, by, by doing your analysis. And I think... Like I said before, a very important message from the from the paper by Dr. Gill and colleagues is that we need to apply urinalysis more often than we currently do, because this cocaine-induced vasculitis, cocaine use in general is increasing, but cocaine-induced vasculitis is also increasingly prevalent. Um, and we're not going to find what we're not looking for. So we need to do more urine tests to come to this diagnosis sooner, preferably before patients use all this immunosuppressive therapy. And with regard to to research, I think that's a very important issue. And as it often is, it's also a difficult issue because we know that it's happening more often than we diagnose. So it's underdiagnosed. And the only way to solve that really is to look for it more often. And like I said, The paper from Dr. Gale clearly showed the best way to do this is to just do urinalysis. And I think in a vast majority of these patients will do urinalysis anyway, because we want to check for renal involvement. But the thing is, we also need to look at use of cocaine. So I think we need to do that more often in clinics across the country to get a better feel of how often this actually occurs. And there have been some reports on the use of a different type of antibodies. The anti-human elastase antibodies, which can give you a little bit more information when you try to discriminate between ANCA-associated vasculitis or cocaine-associated vasculitis. But the, but the downside really is a little bit that those assays are not commonly available, so that's going to be uh, difficult to use in,
0: in clinical settings. Well, I think there's a lot for us to work on there, but a lot for us to think about how we can do things better in the future. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Van Leuven. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And for that whole editorial, for the article behind it, and plenty more, head on down to Rheumatology Advances in Practice. Everything's open access, and there's some excellent content there. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Talking Rheumatology Research, brought to you by BSR. Please do rate, share and subscribe through your favourite podcast app.